Welcome back everyone to Millwood and Micah, A Star Wars Story. My name is Amanda Millwood and I'm a screenwriter, actor, director, and a huge fan of Star Wars. And my name's Todd Micah. I'm the author of the Grimguard book series and we have never watched all the Star Wars movies in order with anyone until, until now. now. <laughs> they all love it so much, that intro. <laughs> if you've been following along with us, then you know that Amanda and I have undertaken the grand, grand plan of reviewing the Star Wars movies in order during this podcast. And if you tuned in last time, you heard part one of us talking about The Phantom Menace. Well, we're here at part two to continue taking the movie apart, analyzing it, and talking about all the things that we loved best. So yeah, Amanda, let's just pick up right where we left off. Yeah, um, so <laughs> I guess that this is something that annoyed a lot of people when they first saw, and I, I'm sure you'll have opinions on it, but I just felt the need to talk about this because we didn't get to last time. The additions to the Star Wars lore, and by that I mean basically everything surrounding the Jedi specifically, because, you know, with the Metachlorians, then, as you said earlier, being bureaucrats, like all this that we had no indication of in the original trilogy is now suddenly like, oh, 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 the prophecy too. That's the other thing. Mm -hmm. There's so much more added. And I feel like everybody hated it. (laughs) (laughs) Everything about it. (laughs) Literally, I feel that's, that's the case. And I don't know, like, I've, I've got my own thoughts, but I'm curious as a fan of this movie, and obviously as a huge fan of Star Wars, like, what were your thoughts about the additions to the lore and Star Wars when you first saw it? Well, I think that there's a big difference between what I thought of it when I first saw it versus what I think of it now. And I think that that's okay. true, of, true of a lot of people. Um, I remember when, as soon as they said, he's the chosen one, I was like, mm-hmm. oh, like Neo from the Matrix. There was a big theme. It's one of those things when you talk about the prequels, especially The Phantom Menace, that George Lucas is like, oh yeah, I totally meant for the whole Chosen thing to be there the entire time. And you're there as a moviegoer looking around at four other films contemporary with it that are all doing the Chosen One theme for their main hero. And you're like, sure, George. Sure, you were planning this the whole time. Sure, you're you JK were. Rolling us. <laughs> I'm sure. Yeah. Is that like Rick Rolling? You're JK Rolling yeah. us. <laughs> That's good. Yeah. We got to we got to coin that. You heard it here, guys. It's it's trademark now. We get five cents yeah. every time you use it. Um, <laughs> one of the big criticisms of the sequel trilogy is they're like, oh man, it's not like the fight, the awesome fighting that we got in you know all the other Star Wars movies. I mean, look at the fighting in Revenge of the Sith or in the Phantom Menace. And I'm like, guys, you know that the the only reason why they fight that way in The Phantom Menace and the other prequels, but especially The Phantom Menace, is that martial arts movies were the craze around this time. Jet Mm -hmm. Li movies, Jackie Chan movies were in their prime, Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon. They even had uh, a movie... Uh, called the musketeer which took d'artagnan from the three musketeers and made him into a martial artist that fought like he was you know he was trained in by the tibetan monks like having martial arts fights was in at the time Mm -hmm. the the movies are a product of their time so those kinds of things at the at the time were like oh yeah I see why they're doing this. I mean, it's in, it's what we all want these days. So yeah, it's cool. But we all kind of rolled our eyes at it at the same time because we knew why it was there. We knew it was going to kind of date the movie in a way. Mm-hmm. But in but in hindsight, I feel like those things are actually really good. I feel like where at the time, because all we were surrounded by these things, that we, we rolled our eyes. But now it's like, oh yeah, the, the Chosen One prophecy, totally original. Yeah, great. And maybe it's because mm-hmm. in a way... It was the best version of it. The Chosen right. One was just kind of there in other stories, but it was so integral to Anakin's character that I feel like it lived on so much longer, even into the modern day. See, I'm going to partially disagree, partially agree, because I hate how obvious and direct it is by literally saying he is the Chosen One. He is Jesus. <laughs> um <laughs> I think it would have been far more interesting if there was no prophecy at all, but they still kept all the things that make Anakin, you know, he's, he was born of the force. He is, you know, he's got the highest midichlorian account, whatever. 
Like, I don't care about all that stuff. That's space voodoo magic. Who gives a shit? Apparently a lot of people, I do not. Um, so, <laughs> but like, for, instead of just straight up having a prophecy, I think it's actually smarter if they were just like, wow, this kid is, like, super special. And then it turns out, like, we as the audience understand he's the main character. He's the chosen one. He's Harry Potter. He's, you know, he is the one that will bring balance to the force. Um you know, in a roundabout sort of way, but <laughs> it's like, yeah. I think that the prophecy is just kind of stupid and lazy, and it's like, it's it's too direct. Like, there's a time and a place for something like that, and it's more in, like, children's stories, I guess, like, you know, that kind mm -hmm. of stuff, but I don't know. I've never liked that they had a chosen one prophecy and all that. That it was so heavy-handed. Yeah, it's like, I don't have a problem with him actually within the story being the chosen one. It's just when you literally call him that, it's like, okay, calm down. <laughs> right? you, you're, you that moment where it's all building up, like, oh, he was conceived by the Force. Oh, it was possible that he was conceived of the midichlorians themselves. And you're just there watching the theater, like, okay, this is getting kind of good. And then as soon as they're like, oh, you're referring to the prophecy of the chosen one. You're just Watch there. You're like, can't, you're like Hannibal Lecter. You're like, no, no, you were doing fine. <laughs> right literally yes i am that that gif of peter griffin sitting in the movie theater done <laughs> like, walks up and leaves. yep that's me <laughs> i feel like that was you like 12 times during the movie and they just like they yeah. the usher like carried you back to your seat and threw you down <laughs> yep they had to restrain me to my seat because i kept getting up and disrupting the movie how dare I? I i feel like it's in a way it's fortunate that you were like two years old when this movie came out <laughs> my two-year-old self be like this is stupid <laughs> storming out with your little just you with a lollipop in your hand like angrily walking up to the waddling up the steps to the door do the roar <laughs> oh my god yeah nah but so that's interesting so nowadays you're are you like chill with the with the lore additions or has it gotten to you like all the other fanboys that oh this is actually kind of stupid and ruins the magic of star wars um, are you talking specifically about the midichlorians? Because I mean, that's the main. Be, yeah, I was like, that's like the main, the main one. <laughs> yeah, that's that's the main one. To be honest with you, when I saw the film, the there were a lot of things that I could overlook. There were a lot of things that I didn't care about. There were a lot of things that many people said, "Oh, this made the movie terrible." Right. I didn't mind. I didn't mind the the um uh weird alien villains in the form of the trade federation i didn't mm -hmm. even particularly mind jar jar binks i thought by the end battle i was like oh okay cool we got some like kind of funny slapsticky humor but it's not really detracting from what is a really gnarly battle scene so i'm like okay cool jar jar serves a purpose he was there in the battle that's that's fine um so i didn't mind him either I didn't mind the whole like virgin birth thing with Anakin. I was like, that I don't care. That's fine. What I but what I did mind was when Qui-Gon just the whole film grinds to a halt as Anakin goes, Mr. Qui-Gon, sir, I've been wondering. And I'll, and as soon as he asked what are midichlorians, I'm like, why do you care? How do you even know what that is? <laughs> if I was Qui-Gon, I would have been like where did you hear that word? <laughs> uh, friend told me. Yeah, you know, little pitchers have big ears, you know. <laughs> uh, watch what you say around kids. I'd be like, guys, why are we talking science with the nine-year-old? You know, <laughs> it, was, it was like a where do babies come from conversation for Qui-Gon. And I'm like, and the weirdest thing is that, like, we, it, it takes you out of the movie so much. But I was also so weird because it again like you said it removes the mysticism of the force and it creates this like biological under a microscope link that the basically the little white blood cells in your body are whispering to you and it's like no it's supposed to be sort of a spiritual thing it's sort of like a psychic mm -hmm. thing there's not supposed to be you're not supposed to be able to measure it in your blood right and like I made peace with it. Ironically, the way that a lot of other materials that came afterward made peace with it, where everyone on the planet at Lucasfilm and all of the 
people who talked about it and wrote books about it afterward were kind of like, well, they were like his lawyers. They were like, well, George Lucas didn't really mean that. Quite was just describing it that way to a little kid. Because if you said to a little kid, yeah, you can sense the spiritual vibrations of the universe and the life energy created by all living things, the kid's going to be like, what are you talking about? But if you were like, yeah, they're actually little microscopic things that live inside your body called the force, and they tell you, they talk to you, and they, and it's like, okay cool so there's a lot of backpedaling by the creative teams at lucasfilm to try mm-hmm. to cover up what george had done as soon as they realized how badly received it was going to be right <laughs> yeah that's that's his i mean i don't care because i don't care about this movie but like and it's really never mentioned again that i can remember is it the midichlorians the midichlorians are mentioned only one other place I'm so happy I have like an encyclopedic memory of the script of the prequels here because it's it's mentioned in Revenge of the Sith when Palpatine says in the the, the, oh, right, the right, right. tragedy of Darth Plagueis that he can manipulate the midichlorians to create life. Yes. And so and so it's weird the midichlorians have like a sort of a dual purpose I feel like for George he meant to imply that Anakin was created by Darth Plagueis very strongly because even before anybody the Darth Plagueis novel before that comic that came out like six years ago that literally showed like Palpatine either metaphorically or literally like looking at baby Anakin through the force and it's like Mm -hmm. oh no the dark side did it um I mean, it's very strongly implied in that film where he literally says he could influence the midichlorians to create, and he just kind of looks fondly over at Anakin as he holds for the word and goes, life. Right. Strongly implying to the audience that Anakin's life was created by manipulating midichlorians. The only way he could justify a virgin birth is that there's little tiny microscopic beings that are the manifestation of the Force so that he can wave his dark side voodoo fingers over it and he scienced Anakin with dark magic cloning. Secrets only the Sith knew. <laughs> Somehow Anakin Skywalker was born. Yes. Yeah, okay. I can't believe I forgot that because I literally did an entire essay on that on that piece of writing. Uh, but yeah, so like for me, like I don't know why. It's literally magic. Like, you can call it whatever you want. The Force is magic. He could have just been born magically. You don't have to create a scientific reason. And again, I don't care. I'm just like, as a writer, why why would you demystify and demagify? Magify, that's not a word. Um, You know, your your magic system that you already established and make it in a way even more confusing than just it's magic. Like, that's yeah. easy to understand and grasp and you know you can add limitations or whatever but like yeah that it just it's a baffling decision for me as a writer of like why would you do that <laughs> like it doesn't no, make me mad no. it doesn't break star wars for me it's just stupid <laughs> right no it's the force in star wars has always been since the beginning of it more of a metaphor for the power of belief Mm-hmm. than anything else right. and that's like that's why it's so weird when people make all kinds of arguments and philosophical statements about like what's the relationship between the light and the dark is there really a light side versus a dark side or is the dark side some perversion of the force are they two things that are supposed to be kept in balance like yin and yang or is the force all there is and the dark side is what happens when you draw from the force and twist it into something evil, something that is meant to be in harmony all by itself, doesn't need the dark side to balance it. You know what I mean? That the force itself is the balance. Right. Um, the force has always just been that. It's been the power of belief. It's been the I think I can, and you do it because you have faith. That's Luke taking the shot at the exhaust port. That's Yoda raising the X-Wing out of the swamp. It's anything i believe i can and because i believe that's what it is just like star wars overall is supposed to be the theme of the power of friendship mm-hmm. exactly you know as care bears as that sounds that <laughs> is the central theme of star wars in most things i mean the care bears are in star wars so <laughs> I mean, it's true <laughs> but but i digress um 
you know, one of the one of the main things I wanted to bring up is one of my big points, and I'm jumping ahead a little bit, so I'm not going to talk about he, why he's my favorite character, um, but he is my favorite character, and that is uh, Qui Gon Jinn. And just because, to, just to clarify for everybody, not your favorite character overall, just your favorite character in this movie, right? In this movie, yes, yes. favorite character, <laughs> favorite character, well, yes, yes, our, our favorite characters from this film. He is my favorite character from the Phantom Menace, and I'll talk about why. But this, what I'm about to say, is not the reason why. Uh-huh. One, well, this is also an answer to one of your things, which was I don't get why Qui Gon is such a popular character. I don't mm-hmm. get why he's people's favorite character. I don't know why the character was even made to begin with. Like, why does just have Obi Wan be here? Why does he need a mentor? He's Liam Neeson. I mean, that ought to be reason enough, really. <laughs> but Qui-Gon is the most important person in Anakin's life. More than Padme, more than his mother, and more than Palpatine's influence on him later, Qui-Gon Jinn's the most important person in Anakin's life. Bold statement. <laughs> it is a very bold statement. Because here's the thing. Anakin has his mother. And sure, losing his mother is a bad thing. Losing his mother tormented him afterward. It tormented him all the time when he left her, and it tormented him after she died. Sure, it did. It put fear into him. But greater than fear is the strength to take care of what is what you're afraid of. It's it's the confidence in yourself. It is the support. It's the strength to overcome fear. And I say that Qui-Gon Jinn would have provided Anakin with what he needed to deal with all the other bad stuff that happened to him, except for the fact that Qui-Gon wasn't there anymore. Mm-hmm. Here's why. And this is for a discussion point. This is not just a manifesto I'm making. Like, I want to discuss this with you because you're like, why does this guy matter at all? Qui-Gon Jinn when he enters Anakin's life, provides something Anakin never had, which is a father figure. And Qui-Gon as a father figure really quickly becomes very central to Anakin's life really quickly. But like, again, this is more of a show and not tell, which I think is a great part of storytelling. Mm-hmm. All of a sudden, Anakin, thanks to Qui-Gon, believes he can be free. He believes that all the slaves on Tatooine can be free. He asks Qui-Gon, are you a Jedi? Have you come to free the slaves? Have you come to free us all? No. (laughs) The answer, of course, is no. Qui-Gon Jinn also represents a way to get mastery over Watto and leverage over him with the wager. He brings Qui-Gon entering into Anakin's life, brings Padme into his life. Otherwise, he would have never met her. He provides that sort of, I'm proud of you, I believe in you and what you're doing. And he's a counterbalance to Anakin's cautious mother. Anakin's, Anakin's mother says, I don't want you to pot race, I die every time water makes you do it. And she holds him back mm-hmm. with the mother's love that protects. But Qui-Gon sees the potential in Anakin. And he drives him to succeed and he drives him forward in daring but healthy ways. All with the sort of understanding that Qui-Gon is constantly watching over him. We see this a lot of ways because when Anakin starts the pod racer, Qui-Gon's right there, arms crossed, nodding approvingly with fatherly approval over his son figure. Mm -hmm giving him motivation to complete an accomplishment that he had no reason outside of his own just curious interest. I want to build a pod race of the fastest one ever. Now he's motivated. Now he has someone to do this for. He has a father to do this for so that his father will be proud of him. Mm-hmm. Everything, every catalyst of what moves him forward and gives him the opportunity to be free is because of Qui-Gon Jinn. And when he leaves... He, Qui-Gon puts his hand on his mother's shoulders and says, I'll watch over him after he is free and packing up to leave. He shepherds him the rest of the way very carefully, other than the scene where they get to Coruscant and he kind of shoes Anakin away. Anakin, Anakin is protected so long as he's with Qui-Gon. Right. And I would even dare say that we see the beginnings of Anakin wandering into things he shouldn't be as soon as he's not at Qui-Gon's side. 
because the only thing that he that, that Anakin does when Qui-Gon's not with him on Coruscant is grab Jar Jar's hand and lead him away while Palpatine and Padme are talking in his office. Mm -hmm. And the next time we see him, he has come all by himself to Padme's quarters to say goodbye to her. Mm -hmm. There's an attachment that he's making, an attachment that if he hadn't kept reaching for it, the last time he saw her would have been on the ship or whenever. Right. Sure, he carved the Jabor snippet for her and everything, but he's already on his way to become a Jedi, and instead of focusing on it, he's returning back to an attachment that he's made. Mm-hmm. And so anytime he's away, anytime he's away from Qui-Gon, he makes bad decisions. Mm-hmm. So what you're saying is the fall of Anakin Skywalker and the Jedi is all Qui-Gon's fault. <laughs> If he had just just left him on that planet and never went to Tatooine, things would have been better for the galaxy as a whole. (laughs) No, great. You're not wrong about that. You definitely are not wrong about it. Okay. Okay. But also hear me out on this one because this is a big conspiracy on this. If Qui-Gon hadn't died, not only would Anakin not have turned to the dark side, he probably would have exposed Palpatine. Mm Mm-hmm. Palpatine was afraid of Qui-Gon. He sends Darth Maul specifically to go against the Jedi. Mm-hmm. And Qui-Gon is the one that Darth Maul separates out and kills. He prioritizes killing Qui-Gon. Right. Certainly by Palpatine's design. Because Dooku in Attack of the Clones says he knew what I did that the Republic was corrupt, he and Dooku both suspected it. Dooku got taken in, Qui-Gon wouldn't have done it. Qui-Gon was the last Jedi that could have noticed that what Palpatine was up to because Qui-Gon bucked the system. He was against everything. He mm-hmm. never followed the rules. He was always off doing things the Council told him not to bother with. One of those eventually would have been, we have a new Chancellor. That's really funny. He really manipulated his way into power in the middle of a sympathetic situation on his home planet. Qui-Gon would have looked into it where all the Jedi turned a blind eye. Mm-hmm. So Palpatine had to kill Qui-Gon, have Darth Maul kill Qui-Gon, in order to create an opening for not just Anakin's downfall, but his own rise to power. Qui-Gon would have stopped the entire thing. He would have stopped the whole operation. No, he would have. And so that's why I make the argument to you that Qui-Gon Jinn is a super critical character because he is the representative of the last of what the Jedi should have been. I mean, I I see that. And I here's the thing. If I don't hate Qui-Gon as a character. I just don't oh, understand no. yeah. why he's everybody's favorite, like for you. Um, and for me, he seems like one of those characters that he's so much cooler. The idea of him is so much cooler than the actual execution. Much like everything in the prequels, <laughs> especially this movie. Because like everything that you just said, super fascinating. I'm like, wow, I wanted to see that. Like I wanted to get the sense that like, because watching the movie you know, the slug that it is, I I never got the sense, and I just know because of you and because of, you know, just the character in general, I know that he's supposed to be, like, the ultimate Jedi and that he's supposed to be against everything that the Jedi stand for in the prequels and everything, but I don't really get the sense of that. Like, I don't, I don't know. Like, you can tell that he disagrees with them on certain things, but I never get the sense that he's an outsider amongst the jedi you know what i mean like or even really i i don't and maybe it's just because everybody's so fucking stoic and boring you know i feel like if they were allowed to actually you know act, act. and and <laughs> act yeah. um i know you guys can you're all good actors thanks george <laughs> yeah seriously um but uh i don't know if, if we actually were able to see him get angry or frustrated with the council, maybe storm out instead of just kind of peacefully take it. All right, I'm going to be stoic Liam Neeson today. <laughs> I, just, yeah. I never got the sense that he, you know, cared deeply about, you know, Anakin or, you know, the prophecy or unveiling the darkness that was brewing within the Jedi Order and all that. Like, I just, 
because again, everything is so monotone, so flat, there's no urgency, there's no nothing that I get attached to with this character. And again, right. I want to, I love Liam Neeson as an actor, he's great. And he has a lot of just like on-screen presence, but somehow, same with Sam Jackson, they're both so sapped of that charisma and the on-screen presence that they have in yep. literally everything else. And it's mm -hmm. wild, it's like a magic trick that George Lucas does. <laughs> Give me a really talented actor, I'm gonna suck everything out of them that makes them talented and charismatic. <laughs> um, and that's for everybody. That's not just them. I mean, that's Ewan McGregor. That's uh, Ian McDermott. That's Natalie Portman. It's everybody. <laughs> so. Yeah, no, every, no, every, all the actors, like you said, totally agree with you that like super talented, very famous, amazing actors are in Star Wars. And it's only too bad, like that they were reading George's writing and under his directive <laughs> hand. <laughs> yes. Yeah, because all of the performances, any good in the performances is not because George Lucas was amazingly directing them how to bring the absolute best out of them. It's because they're very talented actors who picked up and ran with the material they were given and did well because they're they're good at it. Like Harrison Ford as Han Solo, like Ian McDermott as Palpatine. Again, breakout performances that are some of the best, most iconic from Star Wars again they weren't most of it was not george's idea it's the right. talent of the actor bringing that forward and, um, and even then sorry just real quick kind of going back to quite sure like I, I think about his relationship with obi-wan and just how bland it is the way it's written the way it's acted i don't get the set like if i didn't know that they were master and apprentice i would have no idea what their relationship was are you business partners or is it like a father son is it like a you know uncle nephew like there's just no attachment like i would have liked it if either a they had a very tenuous relationship where it's kind of like anakin and obi-wan in attack of the clones where you can tell that there is some animosity like there's that tension between them or it's the actual it's the total opposite where they're incredibly close incredibly attached to each other you know, and we can tell because I think that's what they were going for, but it does not come across in the performances or the writing for me, at least, you know, the only yeah. time that I can think that like Obi-Wan shows any kind of care or anything is when he dies. And it's like, okay, but he would have yeah. done that for any of his colleagues if they died right in front of him. So it does not really compute. <laughs> and granted, and this is, and while I agree with you, this also isn't to say that in order to convey it, that every character has to be like screaming their opinion or crying in every scene. You're right. just pointing out that like the parts where they have any emotions is only certain parts. No, I agree with you that um, the the acting in the in the prequels in general under George Lucas's direction is so much about as I've said a few different times in this, a lot of what's drawn from this, it's show and not tell mm -hmm. because the movies are already very talky as it is. Like right. there's so much to have to demonstrate that I think it's hard to write in more necessarily, but I feel like while the things that show exactly what you're talking about are there, they're very brief and they're very mm -hmm. subtle. Right. Um, again, they're, they don't really develop the dynamic between qui-gon and obi-wan beyond this very formal master and apprentice relationship they have right in canon is it far more rich absolutely lots of things are like that in star wars in general we get like two seconds of it on screen and there's like five books about it you know <laughs> right right in the video game you know um i mean again i think one of the very very subtle things um about Qui-Gon and I, I and I emphasize subtle because it really is to your point how subtle these things are um one of the things that's very subtle but I feel like is one of those rare striking moments that while it is subtle I think it's effective is that moment when Anakin is rejected by the council and Qui-Gon's like what surely he's the chosen one you all see it and they're like yeah but he's too old and we have better things to to do with our time and so Qui-Gon in a, a an act of rebellion steps in front of the council and just says I take him as my Padawan learner pretty much just saying I don't care if you guys approve or not he's my apprentice as of this moment to right. which they rebut and say, you already have an apprentice. You can't take on a second one. And we see this silent plea from Obi-Wan, this look of betrayal of sort of like, 
okay, but wait, I thought I was your apprentice. Now this kid's more important. Mm-hmm. And Qui-Gon just kind of gives the silencing side look to him. Again, it's subtle. I think it's effective, but it isn't obvious. Mm-hmm. And so when Obi-Wan is kind of like, you know, Qui-Gon goes, oh, he's ready for the trials. Obi-Wan is, as it were, again, subtle. But he's kind of like, oh, uh, yeah, yeah, yep, I'm ready for the trials, all right. You know, <laughs> to kind of to to maintain his agreement with his master in public but privately disagrees with him even mm-hmm. fairly strongly strong for as much as people show emotion in the movie right. comparatively <laughs> strong he at least back talks him as opposed to saying yes master um <laughs> but one of the things about that i think that is once again a show don't tell and leading back to my thing about qui-gon as a father figure for him is that when that happens when that event happens there in the jedi council it becomes sort of established what the relationship is between anakin and Mm obi-wan wygon is their father figure and then he has the new son anakin and they are from the get-go pitted against each other subtly but pitted because they can't both be his apprentice and so when qui-gon dies he says as it were to his son obi-wan you have to train anakin now we have the dynamic of an oldest child who has the burden of parenthood put on them by not a neglectful but an actually absent parent Mm -hmm. notice the line in attack of the clones when anakin says to to obi-wan when he says you're going to be the death of me someday he doesn't say oh you're like a father to me Mm -hmm. he says don't say that you're the closest thing i have to a father Anakin has lost his father figure. He has lost somebody whose approval he wants. He doesn't actually at any point want Obi-Wan's approval. He doesn't want it at all. Right. And so you have an older brother. You are my brother, Anakin. You have an older brother acting in place of the father. And that is a huge, once again, not talked about, but there's a huge shown source of all the animosity there is between them. They argue and they bicker and Anakin doesn't really care about what Obi-Wan's going to think. He doesn't want to make him proud. He just says, oh, Obi-Wan's going to kill me. Mm-hmm. It's like getting in trouble and your older brother's going to come home and you've knocked over something in his room and broke it and he's going to beat you up. He scratched his car. <laughs> right. It's He's going to kill me, not you know mr qui-gon sir because he's a father figure and you want him you want him to be proud of you Mm -hmm. so now i'm just thinking okay take qui-gon out of the equation like just theoretically let's take him out the phantom menace let's age up anakin to maybe 14 or 15. it's basically the same story just with those two changes you know darth maul's still sent after obi-wan um to kill him and all that but he actually ends up surviving um so you could have i think that would be a good foundation for where their relationship picks up in attack of the clones when you've got this 14 15 year old kid that's just been taken from his mother he's kind of you know a brat and now you've got this obi-wan you know guy who's come and become his uh his uh master and he doesn't really want to because he himself has just, you know, graduated from the Jedi Knight Council, whatever the hell it's called. Right. And he's like, I don't want to take on this kid. Like, he, he's way too old. Which, as a kid, even watching it now, I'm like, a nine-year-old is too old? What? <laughs> like, <laughs> it would make sense if he actually was a teenager. <laughs> but anyway, right, right, right. You know, I feel like that would be the good groundwork right there if you were to make those small but impactful changes for the rest of you know the because he wouldn't be that much older than anakin but now he suddenly is like an older brother father figure teaching him in the ways of the jedi and he's fighting he's fighting against it because he doesn't even want to be a jedi he wants to go back with his mom and like it would again lay a nice groundwork for when they do eventually become close in revenge of the sith and then the ultimate betrayal and all that because I, I realized it watching it, you know, today, they do not share a lot of screen time at all. They don't really have a relationship outside of no. what you said, you know, that they kind of pitted against each other, but that's about it. And not even really. So 
Yeah. Yeah, no, it, the movie is totally doable without Qui-Gon there. It's it's perfectly acceptably doable, um, which, again, I think the real estimation there for you is just how much does he contribute in ways that are necessary and that are important? Because I've outlined all kinds of ways where his presence and his impact affects a lot of things. But you are right. You could very easily have had Obi-Wan be the one Jedi who shows up all by himself, has to deal with the Trade Federation, has to protect the Queen, has to leave. It's just Obi-Wan Kenobi himself. And then have him find Anakin and take the kid away from his mother. Yeah, Yeah, and have him be a bratty teenager, you know um and and you could totally do that um it just it would just change it it would just be different it wouldn't necessarily be better or worse one thing it would be is simpler cutting the fat like cutting the middleman literally (laughs) yeah the prequels overall and i feel like this movie is a clear version of it just with what we're saying is the movies are in every respect a little a little bloated Mm-hmm. There's a lot they're trying to do in the movies. There's world building and there's lore and all the things we've been talking about. But I'll notice that a lot of my answers to your sort of unasked question of where was this in the movie? Where was this in the movie? I'm like pretty much going, yeah, it's in this one second look they give each other. It's in this one line that's like a throwaway line. Right. Because it's not that the scripts are bad. It's just the scripts... I mean, I would argue on the whole script is a bad thing. The Attack of the Clones has a far worse script than The Phantom Menace does. You can just burn the entire Attack of the Clones script and start all over again. You're not missing a whole lot. But The Phantom Menace, you could take the whole movie. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give you a real hot take in a second that's actually not on my hot takes list. Okay. So, Yeah. But, like, you could just put a different director on it, and most of what's written in The Phantom Menace is actually perfectly fine. Just maybe cut out the whole bit on the midichlorians because nobody likes it. Right. But, like, and again, revise a little Anakin dialogue, maybe age up the character, and the movie is actually perfectly fine. It just needs life in the direction to to fix things with it. Um. So, my only other general grievance is that I love the pod rays. Hmm. Except, if you could just get rid of that cartoony two-headed announcer in the entire thing that's there. Oh my god. I think if I had to, if I had to... Star Wars character? He's my my least favorite Star Wars character. I would have taken a two-headed Jar Jar for the entire movie than that guy, Foden Beat or whatever his name is, in the booth. Wow. I would have... I would have rather they give me a 15-minute explanation about midichlorians than have him voice over the pot rays. Interesting. It is horrible. <laughs> Horrendous. Horrible decision. Because it, it takes so much of the gravitas of the pot rays. And like it's one of those moments where you're like, oh, they threw this in to make it goofy. And I think it's there to like let the air out of the danger and drama so it's not too scary for little kids. Mm-hmm. Because honestly, pot racing is terrifying. And it is metal. <laughs> like, let's let's strap two jet engines to a chariot and stick small aliens and children in them and then shoot them across the desert 800 miles an hour while screaming fans bet money and human lives on it. And I'm like, oh my god. Oh yeah, and then they crash and burn and everyone cheers. And I'm like, what? Yeah, there's Tuscan readers shooting at everyone at one part. I'm like, what? 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 Yeah. But they but they just like introduce a little cartoony mission to it, you know? Yeah, I mean, I you're not wrong. It is annoying. I just have never really thought about it because they're on screen for like what five minutes total. <laughs> but, um, the worst five minutes of my life. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I will say though, speaking of five minutes, the I like the pod race for about the first five minutes. And then I get so sick of it so fast. Like I, I they should have cut like 10 minutes. Cause I think it's like a 15 minute sequence or close to the that. Pod race, the pod race is not that long. Wait, are you talking about the actual start of the race? The actual, the green light first start of the yes. race. I'm for, I swear if it's not, it 
feels like it. It is so fucking long. And like, again, I like it for the first couple minutes. And then I'm like, okay, I'm over this. I'm skipping. <laughs> like, it is so long. Oh my gosh. That's so weird because if you had asked me, okay, so so for reference, it is it is just over 15 minutes. Oh, I knew it. Oh my god, cuz I remember cuz my sister and I, we actually were watching the we were watching all the prequels together um okay. with, uh, with a friend of ours and I we got to the pod race and again, the first couple minutes we were like, "Oh, this is fun. These are fun sound effects. Like this is this is cool." And then it just kept going. And we're like, holy shit, how long is this? And then we actually looked. Like, we started it again. And then we went to the very end when he won. When he won? Mm-hmm. When he won. <laughs> and we're like, that was over 15 minutes? Are you kidding me? Oh, my God. It was torture. Oh, God. So this is like purely a matter of taste on it because for <laughs> me the pod race is I, if you would have asked me how long it was i would have been like it's like eight or nine minutes tops like it's not that long <laughs> no sir but see but i love the pod race so for oh, yeah. you you're like can this end i'm like more more <laughs> more pod racing more pod racing. I would, i'm that person in the stand that says yeah the nine-year-old kid almost crashed a thousand dollars on the guy with six legs oh my gosh no thank you like that's me i'm like a bloodthirsty pod race enthusiast i mean okay you have to remember though i am deeply biased i did play the pod racer game mm-hmm. and i when i tell you that as a 15 year old I play. I got the Pod Racer game, and my parents might as well have gotten me on crack, because <laughs> I played that game every single day that summer from like ten in the morning until like five o'clock in the evening. It was just me versus the Pod Racing tracks. I was on the track like seven hours a day, man. That is ridiculous. Yeah, could not be me. <laughs> I yeah, no, it was, it was boring. Be like, so boring. It was my hyperfixation. It was bad. It was so <laughs> bad. So, no, needless to say, I mean, for years, for years, on the wall of my room, I think until I was like twenty-five, there was like this big pod racing poster. It was like a mm-hmm. mock-up, like as if as if it was from an actual pod racing arena, you know, mm-hmm. starring these racers and everything. Yeah, I... it is bad though. What? Sorry, good. Oh, I was just going to say, like, whoever, I don't know who runs the Now This Is Podcasting podcast, but they must have, like, they must have felt like they hit the jackpot for pod, for, like, podcast names. <laughs> like, that yep. is one of the best podcast names I've ever heard. <laughs> now, this. See, this is what I mean when I, by the way, just that line you referenced, that's one of the reasons why I say that, like, 98% of the movie's dialogue is actually really good. It's actually really memorable and really quotable, but just change stuff like that that comes out of Anakin Skywalker's mouth. Don't have him yell yippee. Don't have him shout, now this is Pottery saying when he comes out of the hangar. The line doesn't make any sense. Actually, I would argue that the line would be much cooler if he was a teenager, because I'm imagining like Jim Hawkins from Treasure Planet and being like, now this is pod racing <laughs> and like hitting it. Like I could see it being a cool line. If it wasn't being delivered by a nine-year-old. <laughs> did, did I just, did I just bugs bunny you into saying that I, I, I put across that you could change a line from the Phantom Menace and you were like, no, 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 the script's fine. Just be- better direction and a different actor. Thank you, Amanda. That's exactly what I've been driving at this whole time. No, rabbit season. Duck season. <laughs> okay, but here's my other here's my other hot take about the movie though. And you know what? I'm I am I don't know. I have multiple hot takes. The one I have is good. I'm gonna run with the one that I currently have written down. That's what I'm gonna do. Okay. My hot my hot take is that the Phantom Menace has the best visual effects of any of the prequels and as i've said i would even argue that it has the best script of any of the prequels i'm gonna that definitely is a hot take i'm gonna have to disagree with you there but i can understand the visual effects just because it's the prequel that has the most like actual visual effects like handmade ones like the sets and the puppets and everything so like i understand that um yeah 
it, are they my favorite? No, <laughs> but I yeah. understand but, why you would say that. It's a labor of love because they had so much time in production and so much time in post-production. I mean, the principal photography for The Phantom Menace was two years before the release of the film. And they had the, 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 the pre-production for it went back to like 1994. Mm-hmm. Like this was this massive labor of love. And, and best of all, all the stuff is experimental. Like the closest, most realistic CGI we had was like Jurassic Park. Groundbreaking, groundbreaking realism in the CGI. There was so, I have books on what they went through with the Phantom Menace's uh, um, motion capture and everything they did, how they like very carefully matched the lighting sources and the shadows and everything to make sure that Jar Jar and Watto and all those CGI characters looked as realistic as they could possibly get them to be. And then we get to Attack of the Clones and we're like, here's Dexter Jetser. He's like this, yeah, who cares if he really looks like he's even there? It's fine. Clones? Whatever. Let's just make them all CGI. Who needs guys in costumes? Who cares if it looks real? It's fine. They're moving around so fast. Who even knows? Yeah, the the CGI is so cartoonish and they get so lazy. Yeah, sure. Come at me like prequel apologists who are like, oh, they actually built a lot of these sets physically. I'm like putting blue blocks in a blue screen stage (laughs) does not count as building a physical set. Okay? Yeah. (laughs) I think that I think personally that Revenge of the Sith like is the best mix of the CGI and the real sets and like locations and all that like for me personally Um, because you know like the whole lava waterfall like they actually built that whole set and shot it there you know and they took real um, I guess photography and video of actual active volcanoes and just kind of you know matted it in and all that. But right. then you've also got, of course, you know, CGI General Grievous and these robots and oh, droids and God. all that. And so, yeah. <laughs> but it's not, I think Attack of the Clones is where it's the most blatantly obvious that it's CGI, whereas it's better integrated because it was just done later, where CGI was being well, polished well, and all that. A, and- well, a ton of the stuff in The Phantom Menace is also outdoors on location. They're not under right. set lights, they are on location in tunisia they're on location in italy inside the palace they're on location all these places with natural realistic lighting and like there's outdoor locations on uh, uh, in the other f- films that aren't even filmed outside like mm-hmm. at all like they didn't even bother finding a location that could do it and then like doctor it up with cgi they're like nah don't worry about it nah, it'll be fine and the st- the lighting is honestly one of the biggest things I have an issue with. The, the For example, even things like the beloved Battle of Coruscant to Revenge of the Sith, the lighting is horrible. The whole thing looks like it's just underneath a lamp. I just it doesn't have it doesn't have any atmosphere to it. They're, they 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 don't create dramatic lighting for it the way they do with a lot of things in the Phantom Menace. They just there's there's love that's put into the way the shots are picked that they just don't do in a lot of the other movies. It's almost like they were trying harder with it being the first one, and then they realized they could get mm-hmm. away with an awful lot. You know what I mean? In episodes two and three, I'm not saying there was an effort put into it. God knows they put millions of dollars and thousands of hours into it. It's it's kind of like, like you say, the execution of it's just different. Right. Yeah. I mean. I don't know if I would consider that a hot take because like I said I, I see why you would think that um, but uh, interesting so now that we've gotten through everything that is wrong with the movie which is going on for <laughs> over an hour now um, because it is flawed it is, it is a flawed movie it's fair to say with all these movies they're flawed yes but now I guess we can move on to our favorites and end with you know a high note um, yes do you want to go so first? So who's your, who's, who's, no, you go first. Who's your favorite character from The Phantom Menace? <laughs> Y'all are never going to guess. <laughs> I certainly, um, I, I, it certainly took me by surprise when I saw the sheet before we started. Yeah, so my favorite character in The Phantom Menace is actually Shmi Skywalker, um, which I was just, as, I'm just as surprised as you guys are because, you know, I adore <laughs> characters like Obi-Wan and Anakin and all that, but like, yeah. Like I said, in this movie in particular, I think this has the worst acting out of 
pretty much any Star Wars movie. If I'm if I'm going to be honest, maybe that's a hot Agreed. take. The, act, the acting, no, the acting is 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 terrible. My other hot take was going to be how bad Natalie Portman's acting is. That to the point where I almost wanted to say, but I balking on it. I almost <laughs> want to say she was is awful. I, when she when she when she was sixteen and being directed by George Lucas, yeah, <laughs> poor girl. <laughs> but uh, I think that the reason I like Shmi so much in this movie is because she is the only relationship, like her and Anakin are the only re- relationship that I buy. And we, I mean, we talked about that earlier, how I just do not feel that any of these people have any connection, um, even though they're blatantly supposed to. These two, Anakin and Shmi, are the only ones that I buy. And I don't know if it is just because, you know, it's a woman and a child and, you know, there's like an instant motherly bond or whatever but like well well well, it's it's natural it's an organic connection the other ones oh he's a master and an apprentice in a league of space monks like that's something we have to learn about to know what it's like mother son we all understand that right and uh i just love how like warm and caring she is and how much she wants to protect her son but also let him go off to live you know the life of a jedi and all that and how like strong she'd have to be in order to let her son go not knowing if he was gonna be okay or not um that's really the and i mean this kind of goes directly into my favorite scene of the movie um which is anakin leaving his mom i think that that is Mm. the only that and the it's working scene which is weird because like it's not the just the one part where he turns on the uh you know the i was gonna say the jet engine the pod racing engine and you know it it comes to life and the music swells and obi-wan and uh or sorry not obi-wan qui-gon and shmi are watching and they're very proud but shmi also is looking very like nervous like she knows her son's about to go into a very dangerous situation um and like it's a very triumphant very great piece of of a scene not the whole scene, just that one piece, but Anakin leaving his mother is kind of where, I mean, I guess you could say that the story of Anakin's of Anakin's life really starts, and I think that they yes. really put the perfect amount of weight to it, where it's not too sentimental, it's not too heavy, but it's like just right, I feel like. Um, yep. You know, and I love the, the last thing that Shmi tells him, you know, be brave, don't look back, whatever it is that she says. Um, and yeah, I mean, I think that it makes sense that that is kind of what the first poster was, if I remember correctly, um, was him leaving home in the shadow of Vader on one of the huts and all that. Yep. Like, I think that that's, yep. it just shows how important and how powerful that one scene is and how, you know, the rest of his life basically is ahead of him. And it's obviously a very dark life and a very sad one. And it's all because he left his mother and it's like, wow, it's really heavy. And I'm glad that they gave it the proper respect and do that it was supposed to be given um full disclosure it's also the only scene from the phantom menace that actually brings brings tears to my eyes oh really yeah i mean it yeah. doesn't make me cry but it, i do feel it i'm like wow that's really sad i have a moment that makes me tear up if not actually shed tears in mm-hmm. i think every star wars movie oh interesting we might need to add that to, to the category <laughs> just part that makes todd cry where does todd yeah. cry um i don't i don't know that actually that's not true i have cried at a star wars movie but it wasn't because it happened after i saw return not return of the jedi um rise of skywalker i took a picture oh, of myself crying in the car as i was driving and like and because i was just so upset it wasn't even crying at the movie i was just so mad that i had to cry um yes but uh i remember this yes um i still have that picture on my phone um but uh yeah why did it make it sound like it was your your lock screen is your own crying face (laughs) literally (laughs) don't forget what they took from us exactly um and on top of you know just kind of piggybacking off of Shmi being my favorite character, I really like the kind of relationship that she forms with Qui-Gon. Again, it's not like explicitly said or there's not much to it, but I kind of like this. They should have just gotten together. I don't, 
Like, Qui-Gon already doesn't follow the rules of the Jedi, and a bunch of Jedi like Anakin and Obi-Wan don't either, and nobody seems to give a shit, so... Like, you yeah. should have just settled down with me and raised Anakin on some place yep. that wasn't Tatooine. Um, because they clearly had the hots for each other, and, like, they would have raised him right, and that's that's my headcanon. <laughs> yeah, you know what my headcanon is? You know what my headcanon is? My headcanon is that the night before the pod race, that Qui-Gon uh, sneaked into Shmi's room and they spent the night together. Do you <laughs> yes, want to know why I think that? You know why I think that? Because the next day when he's there, he's just kind of, he might as well have a cigarette in his hand while he's talking to Watto, making the bet. He's feeling pretty good. He's feeling pretty confident for some reason. Like, Qui-Gon didn't just have a really good sleep in the slave quarters of Tatooine. Like, you know, he came walking in there with a strut, and he kind of, you know, he's kind of walking kind of slow, and he's like, you know what? I think I'll take that back. Yeah, boy or his mother. And at that point, I think you could take either one. He was like, you know, it's fine. I get the mom. I'm good. I'm still good, man. Oh, man. You know, I think he was fine making that bet. But then there's also that part where, you know, Watto flies by and he says something to the effect of, you know, you better stop your friend betting or I'll own him too. And then uh, Anakin goes, what did he mean by that? And Qui-Gon says to him, oh, I'll tell you another time. And then he turns to Shmi and he goes, good morning. As he like helps her off of the thing. And I'm like, oh, 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 all right. He's like, I'll leave early. I'll leave early and you come up like two hours later with the pod. Okay. And then I'll be like, good morning. <laughs> yes, sir. This is a kids' movie. Um, <laughs> a scandal. Yes, but uh, yeah. So that would See, be uh, my favorite character and my favorite scene. What about you? I mean, we already know who your favorite character is, but oh yeah, no, my no, my no, my my favorite character is Qui Gon. He's in there sneaking into Shmi's room. He's there gambling with innocent lives. He's there, you know, breaking the rules. He's Mister credits will do fine or we could use a transport or you know he's 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 there like you know can you let me off with a warning officer like mm-hmm. you know Qui-Gon's there bending the rules for his own you know ease but at the same time like everyone else is sitting on their hands not doing anything and that's what makes him a bit of a rogue that's what makes him kind of cool because he's the character that doesn't obey the rules he's not so much of a rule breaker that we're like how is this guy even a jedi but mm-hmm. we watch him take liberties with the force to get things done and that's great and that's also what makes him such a likable character as the father figure that he is to anakin and the mentor to obi-wan is oh this guy wants to get things done here's people standing around in rooms debating if the if the ambassadors have arrived here's people debating in the senate whether they need to send a commission to go check and see if the Naboo system is really on fire. Like, here's people talking about things, and here's Qui-Gon being like, can we just get to it? I almost wish that, just to iron it in further, that when when the gas starts coming into the room at the start of the movie, that Qui-Gon's just like, no, this is more like it. I thought this would be a boring meeting. Cracks his knuckles, you know? <laughs> He's not a regular Jedi. He's a cool Jedi exactly exactly so um well yeah that's right you already talked about your favorite scene then um my favorite scene i kind of have two Mm -hmm. so the big highlight of the movie for me is the duel of the face the lightsaber duel i think Mm -hmm. that it is i think that it is and revenge of the sith fans will argue with me on this one but i think that it is the greatest lightsaber duel in all of the star wars saga in any movie yeah i i would disagree with that but i i understand why no no sure and, and sure sure and i'll give to the fight in revenge of the sith that there it's with people who we know who are emotionally invested in but like the fight itself I think that the the duel of the fates is is exquisitely choreographed. That it doesn't drag too long. It it isn't. It it doesn't belabor the fight. Everything is like perfect. It's like the Homelander meme. It's perfect down to the very last detail. It's perfect. Perfect. <laughs> it's 
perfect. I think it is stroke for stroke, step for step, beat for beat, scene for scene. I think it is a perfect lightsaber duel. It's not too long. It's not too short. The cadence, the variety, the way that they get split up, the way there's a break. I think it's just absolute perfection. I think it's absolute perfection. I think it's flawless. I think that the Duel of the Fates track is flawless like the oh yeah i think it adds so much to it yes yeah like, we should just say that the music in general in the prequels is the best star wars music like we can just say that everyone agrees yes with that. But, it really like, is it's but it's specifically best. revenge of the sith has the best star wars soundtrack period not i wouldn't say the most iconic because that would be the original but like the best overall hell yeah and a lot of it starts here you know with the fan what you disagree <laughs> I think I think that the Phantom Menace and Revenge of the Sith soundtracks are neck and neck some of the best. And the only reason why I also say that is because a lot of music from the Phantom Menace soundtrack is actually used again in the other prequels. Um, you know, the entire arena battle where they're where they're fighting against the, uh, the droids in Geonosis. Mm-hmm. Um, that entire battle music is actually from the Phantom Menace soundtrack, for example. It wasn't composed right. for that. Um yeah, no. Uh, I think they're neck and neck, good, for, good for each other. They're in different ways. Um, I personally prefer the Phantom Menace soundtrack. Of I'm totally you allowed to prefer <laughs> the other one, but I think that they are equally as good. Yeah, yeah, it is really good. I love the Duel of the Fates, the parade soundtrack at the very end. You know, yeah. all of the different individual themes that we bring for the characters and all that it's all very very good but i think that the duel of the fates is sort of the low-hanging fruit to be able to say like oh it's the best scene well sure it's played to the greatest music on the soundtrack of what is debatably the best star wars soundtrack Mm -hmm. and it's the lightsaber duel the climactic battle we've been waiting for the whole movie and it's the only like really true at least at the climax of a film true like two-on-one lightsaber battle like the the dooku fight is like two-on-one for like the first minute and like that's it but it's like an actual sustained two versus one lightsaber fight with a double-sided lightsaber it's awesome sure point is my other favorite scene like it has dialogue in it scene is when Adme or Queen Amidala arrives on Coruscant and has that scene in Palpatine's office. Uh-huh. I think the dialogue is great. I think the pacing is great. I love the fact there's no music throughout. Ian McDermott gets his first um, real true spotlight in the all of Star Wars right there. And we get to watch him just subtly direct everything. We watch him leading her on. Um, you know, describing very disingenuously that you know the chancellor is mired in in baseless accusations of corruption. He's even being magnanimous to the guy who he clearly wants out of office, mm-hmm. and then he you know slips her that line about how you could call for a vote of no confidence, and then all that. And it's a short scene, but I think it just lays such a great foundation for his character. Um, that's so good. I also, again, love the fact that she is sitting there on the throne in my favorite outfit of hers there. I love that in the concrete, um, in the concrete labyrinth that is Coruscant, because let's face it, Coruscant is the ugliest and grayest in The Phantom Menace. They made it look all cool with neon lights and stuff in the later movies. Mm-hmm. But you notice that when he goes, when she goes into his office, everything is like this, this lush, like, I don't even know what it is, like, like Cabernet, like Burgundy on everything. Her handmaidens are even dressed in red, <laughs> foreshadowing the royal guards. Mm-hmm. She's in his domain, and all of a sudden there's this color and everything is red. And like, I, I just, I love everything about it i even like how he is like sort of like fakely dressed almost like he has one outfit that's in like naboo green because very clearly he does not match the decor in his office this is not what he normally wears right yeah because i think that just since we're talking about the costuming for a second i think that that is kind of palpatine's color is that sort of deep red burgundy almost um and that he wears it in every movie to varying degrees in different outfits but like, yeah, it is. It, but he does have that dark green um, that I guess symbolizes the more Naboo side of him. Um, but uh, yeah, it, it. I really like that scene too. As brief as it is, it's like a minute long. But like, yeah, um, 
but yeah, it is definitely one of the better scenes in the movie for sure. So yeah, I love it. I love it. And as of this point, I feel like we've pretty much run out of things to talk about. We've gone over all the points in the film that's worth talking about, the highlights of the movie for us, the big discussion points. Uh, we've given our hot takes and our grievances. We've talked about our favorite characters. So overall, Amanda, what would you give? What's your rating, your scale of 1 to 10 for Star Wars Episode One: The Phantom Menace? Well... I'll tell you, it's uh, going to be a 4.5 out of 10 for me. <laughs> it is my least <laughs> favorite Star Wars movie. It is not one that I would ever go and watch by itself, unlike what I just did here. <laughs> and uh, I only watch it if I'm marathoning Star Wars for whatever reason. And I, yeah, it's just really the only things that keep me coming back to it are the costumes, the music, um, and the very brief individual scenes or moments from the movie. But Overall, it is just a huge mess, so incredibly boring, pointless <laughs> to me. Um, like I, no, would, this is your time to shine. This is your last chance to say what you think of it. Yeah, I would just skip directly to Attack of the Clones, which is basically Phantom Menace, but done better in my opinion and more concise. <laughs> and so, anyway, what would you rank it, Todd? So, so as you may remember from the last episode, The Phantom Menace is fairly high up on my list of favorite Star Wars movies. I think it's number five, if I remember correctly. Um, it's even higher than that. I thought it was like number two or something. <laughs> I don't remember off the top of my head, but I know it was top five, and it was top five uh, favorite Star Wars movies. Uh, the Phantom Menace, for me, me personally, is an 8.2 out of 10. Um the Phantom Menace for me is a great Star Wars movie because it does such great foundational world building of introducing us to the core concepts of Star Wars. Um, sure, it like doesn't do a great job on a couple of things. It waffles on things like the midichlorians and like that. It's just good old fashioned action serial space monks with magic powers swinging laser swords around. It's good old fashioned action and fun. And for me, for if, if that's enough for you as a Star Wars fan or a moviegoer, it was for me when I was, you know, 14 years old seeing it for the first time. I fully, fully admit that my 8.2 has at least a full point just nostalgia. <laughs> right. That makes sense. So, well, there you have it. That was our review of Star Wars Episode One: The Phantom Menace. Up next, next week, we will be starting with part one of our review of Episode Two, Attack of the Clones. Yeah, boys, so excited. That's going to be great. We <laughs> think we're going to have a lot of opinions on that one, too, by the way, because you may recall this one is definitely in my top four, maybe even my top three. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and even though it's like, pretty bottom of the barrel for me i still think it's a ton of fun so i can't wait to talk about it <laughs> yeah that would for, for me too for me too so yeah we'll we'll get into it next time that's all for today to all of our listeners thank you so much for tuning in we'd love to hear your thoughts on this episode so feel free to leave a review or comment follow the podcast give us a good rating and all that good stuff you can find us on Instagram at Millwood and Micah Podcast. And don't forget that our sweet podcast merch is available on TeePublic. Thanks again, and we'll be back in the next episode.